Hi, I'm Alex Mozed, and we are here today on Winner Take All, where we talk about all things tech, monopolies, regulation, and all kinds of fun stuff. So um, we're going to talk about, we have some earnings releases. Baidu actually just released earnings uh, minutes ago. I think their stock is up over 7% right now. We're going to break down what's going on there. We had some Chinese uh, platform earnings releases last week. Uh, like Alibaba and a couple others. And so we are, let, let's see where Baidu nets out. Um, we also are going to look at uh, what we think is going to come up for Salesforce. Salesforce is announcing earnings on Thursday. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, GE has been in the news uh, for some not so good things. And, uh, you know, we had spoken a lot about GE Digital and GE Software and what they tried to do. So are there any relationships or ties to the most recent GE news around their insurance company and, and I guess not reporting things as accurately as they should? Um, and what we saw with their behavior around GE digital, GE software. Last thing is Facebook and Twitter um, are banning people, or presumably Chinese government, from spreading disinformation uh, for these Hong Kong protests. So let's dig into that a little bit and the role of uh, tech regulation. So. Um, Let's we'll, we'll come back to Baidu's earnings um, in a second, but let's jump into basically the backstory with Baidu. So if we look at the past year, Baidu shares are down about 56 percent in the past year. Um, yeah, I'd say a lot of analysts are attributing that to China's uh, weakening economy and therefore advertisers are pulling back from advertising. And that's how Baidu makes its money. Baidu is basically Google search of China. Um, there's also rising competition. There is a big new, relatively new Chinese tech company, which is trying to be basically the Google for social media. So instead of just being a Google for websites now, can you be the Google for social media? Um, joined by Nick Johnson, co-author with me on the book. What is the, do you remember the name of that company? I was trying to remember who is like the Chinese social media search engine. I was thinking it might be ByteDance, which owns TikTok and a few other things, but um, I wouldn't necessarily classify them as a search engine. They're certainly one of the big social media companies out there. Then, it, then it's got to be someone else. I don't know. I'll think of the name. Um, but basically, there's a new there's there's more competition in search in China, particularly along the lines of search for social media content, which is much harder to scrape. And we've actually seen Google. Search have some challenges scraping Facebook. Facebook doesn't let Google scrape Facebook and Twitter. And right. if, it, um, if it's in the walled things. garden of platforms, you've often seen a lot of that data uh, not service in search engines. What we've also seen with Baidu is there's a company called God. These names are tough. Um, I I Q E I Q I Y I. Show you this article so you can. You know, I have a better idea of what I'm talking about. Um, Baidu and IQE. IQE is a public company, but it's still owned by Baidu or I think controlled by Baidu. But it's basically like the Netflix of China. Is it a platform? Do they have user, enough user-generated content to be a platform? I haven't looked closely at it. I think probably not. Um, but I think that the ownership structure for this isn't unusual. You see a lot of these up-and-coming tech IPOs, a lot of particularly in the content space, a lot of these companies are going to be heavily backed, if not majority owned by one of Baidu, Alibaba, or Tencent in a lot of cases. 
And so basically we've seen this, we've seen this with Tencent. We were talking about this a few episodes ago with Tencent. What's happening is the Chinese government is putting a lot of control over platform companies in China and making sure that the certain message is getting out the way the Chinese government wants it. I'm not a fan of that. Um, I'd say we still have problems in the U.S., but there's a marketable difference between the challenges we have in the U.S. and straight, raw government censorship. So that's a whole other thing we'll get into later. Point is here, though, that with the Chinese government strengthening their grip, that's what this article is about, it's not good for these large tech platform companies, Tencent, and in this case, Baidu, um, because the Chinese government is basically becoming a threat to the core platform or to the subsidiary platforms. In this case, IQE um, got in trouble with Chinese regulators. It's a public company. I think IQE's stock has tanked. There's two things that can go wrong. The, the sort of, they say, best case scenario when you get in trouble is you have to spend a lot more time and money basically improving your content moderation to make sure that you meet the standards that the basically Communist Party is asking you to meet. And that can be expensive, and uh, it was something that all these content platforms have to deal with in China. The worst case scenario uh, is that you could shut down entirely, which has actually happened to a number of these kind of up-and-coming social media platforms that have been, uh, from the point of view of the Chinese Communist Party, repeat offenders or have been particularly egregious offenders. Uh, They can actually get shut down entirely, and some of these, even if they've been invested in by a big company like a Tencent, have gotten totally shut down. So that, that there's... A spectrum of uh, you know remedies and things that you can have to deal with if you're kind of in the crosshairs here. None of them are good from a business perspective in terms of they're going to create additional costs and in some cases can kill the business entirely. So I can understand why investors are uh, you know hesitant because there's a lot of uncertainty about where you fall on that spectrum and you can you know be cut off basically completely one day and you don't have really full control of your business operating in that environment. Well, yeah, so exactly. So that's plagued IQE. It's, it's hurt Tencent with some other subsidiaries. Um, it's just a very tenuous landscape to navigate. Um, so anyway, so that's also been a big drag. So Baidu is down, as I was saying, about I think 56% here over, or, over the past year. Um, and... IQE's stock is down, I don't know, 40 or 50%. And they have a big ownership stake in IQE. So, you know, it's dragging the whole thing down. Um, And I think, you know, so that dovetails into this other concept here of of where are these lines? And and it's very hard to figure it out. So Facebook and Twitter accused China of running disinformation campaign against Hong Kong protesters. What I gather, so it says they've they've suspended 936 accounts associated with misinformation campaign. And I guess basically they're banning them on grounds that they're creating fake accounts. I mean, it's, um, it's very similar to what you saw with the Russia investigation stuff where there's basically people creating lots of quote unquote bot type accounts where they're basically using it to promote and disseminate you know, certain points of view. They're basically doing it to... Uh, either promote fake stories or amplify ones that they think will create you know, discord. So maybe these are bots. Is that through? Because well, am- a lot of them, a lot of them aren't. Technically, people will call them bots, but they're not actually like they're not a AI behind it. It's like yeah. a person doing it, uh, but they're basically there to uh, you know, professionally troll and uh, get people into arguments and that kind of stuff and push negative uh, negative points of view on particular topics beyond what you know it would typically merit in a news cycle. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. Part of me says, I don't know what terms of service these, 
I mean, okay, it's bad. Okay, fine. But I don't know what terms of service these guys are actually breaking by spreading. Yes, it's misinformation and, and it's, it's, I well, guess, I think politically this has been a disruptive. Bit of a moving target for these big platform companies to figure out over the last, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months. A lot of them didn't really have policies to deal with this and basically their community standards on what kinds of uh, misinformation are allowed or not allowed. I think they now all have policies basically against, uh, you know, state actors or government actors basically intervening to spread propaganda mm. and that kind of stuff. So I think that I'm sure it contravenes their policies, but I think what does and what doesn't is not something that's particularly well defined. And this has been one of the issues that Facebook and Twitter have had in the U.S., particularly with the U.S. government starting to look at how do we actually oversee this and put some rules in place is that these things are not well-defined and they kind of start to figure them out on a kind of as-you-as-it-goes basis. So this other Chinese content platform site called Doyu TV, it's raised $1.1 billion. It went public last month um, under the ticker D-O-Y-U. Presumably, it will be in the ETF next year. What else do we know about this company, Nick? They are one of the big streaming companies in China, right? It looks like Twitch for China. Right. So a lot, I think a lot of what they do is gaming and kind of streaming content. There's, I would say, at least three or four of these big competitors in China. Uh, my understanding, I think, is Douyu is one of the, the biggest ones there. So the, basically the, there's uh, a few other competitors, I think at least one of which is also public uh, listed, I think, in the U.S., uh, on the NASDAQ, and uh, the, a lot of these companies have struggled with not yet being profitable, which is basically they're there, they're public, uh, but they're struggling with how do you get to profitability, and they have a lot of rising content costs that come from like the big mega stars and exclusive deals, what they try to get with them. Mm-hmm. Like uh, not versus locking the kind in of, the ninjas of their world. Right, like when Ninja just went to uh, Microsoft's uh, streaming platform, mm-hmm. uh, Mixer, Jim, we got a big uh, deal out of that. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening in the Chinese market because you have not just one or two of these players, but like three or four yep. hyper competitive for talent and content because that's really what drives viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they haven't shown, I think, ability yet to really drive profitability. I think they might actually have lower margins than some of their competitors. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, to be determined uh, which of those ultimately come out ahead or if they end up in some cases merging some of them together, which is what we've seen in other markets right. like ride sharing happen. Yeah, it's interesting. The, what this is saying is, that they they not only have um, video games, but they're doing live sports, and people are also adding commentary subtitles to videos. Yep. So it's not just the the kind of like video commentary that you're familiar with on a Twitch, or but also the text commentary. They're doing content ranging from sports, variety shows, and entertainment. I think we've seen Chinese tech platforms actually leapfrog. I think a lot of U.S. tech platforms. Also, I think in social media, yep. I think in messaging, like, like I think WeChat. The, a big part of it here, there's a challenge, is that the content rights are such a quagmire. Uh, in, in the terms U.S. Of, in the U.S., in terms of actually like getting the rights to be able to broadcast some of that stuff and let people comment around it. Like we've right. seen Twitch do it with the Gatorade. But even in messaging, like, there's no reason why. Yeah. I mean, they just were able to really be ahead of the ball on that. Right. So um, a lot of what you're seeing would do you and the things that they do. Uh, in terms of enabling people to basically comment around the premium content and streaming and that right. kind of stuff, I would expect that kind of stuff to start make its way into some of the Western streaming platforms yeah. in a bigger way in the next couple of years. Yeah, exactly. So um, this one was pretty interesting to see. Um, and there are certain areas I think you can look at China um, 
and 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 foresee what will probably come to the Western markets, U.S. first, and then you know eventually Europe. Um, in some of these areas, content platforms, messaging platforms, payments, social networking. Um, yeah, yeah, and financial. Yeah, let's go back to the U.S. Let's look at GE. So there's this guy who he said he was the Madoff whistleblower. So anyway, he's on to GE, and it's funny. Like after there's a disaster, I feel like. There's 50 people that say, oh, I called that. Oh, I called the recession in 08. Oh, I'm the whistleblower on Madoff. But well, I'm sure there, there was more than one. He might have been one of the, the uh, prime contributors. Yeah. There's often a few, a few folks that contribute to right. these kinds of things. Um, so he's on to GE and he's saying, hey, look, so GE has an insurance company. And he's basically saying that they aren't disclosing. They need to have higher insurance reserves. They're not disclosing information appropriately their balance sheet is actually way worse than it looks today. And, um, you know, this is kind of like the next Enron is, is basically what this guy is saying. So let's back up the script and look a little historically. It's different management now. So it's not the current CEO and, and team that's um, in there at GE. But, you know, if you look at the five year for GE here, it's not good. Yikes. What is that? It was at a high of like 31. Now it's at sub 10, 860. So why is that? Well, actually a few years ago, there used to be all these articles. That was why I'm going to find one while I go through this. You know, GE makes a trillion dollar investment in platform economy. Let's see if that pulls it up. They literally, this was everywhere where GE's how did the GE make a trillion dollar business case to go and become a platform company? I mean, they were crushing um, the the messaging around digital transformation and all these kinds right, of they things. They had lots of ads recruiting developers saying, hey, we're going to be like Google, come work here and all this kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, GEC's digital revenue doubling, more than doubling to $15 billion by 2020. So it went... On and on and on. And um, basically what happened is, so GE makes all these machines. They make locomotives. They make planes and, and engines. They make wind turbines. Wind turbines. Elevators. A lot of industrial machinery, elevators, escalators, all these things. I mean, and appliances, but that's kind of not doing so well for them. And, um, you know, they're saying, oh, we're going to connect all these things together and then we're going to get all of these efficiencies. This was the IoT, Internet, Industrial Internet of Things. And boom, whoop, we're going to have a platform and we're going to be worth gobs and gobs of money. Here's what actually ended up happening. GE has this thing. I think it was originally called GE Digital. Then it was called GE Software. And um, it was a separate business unit. Here was the problem. It was a separate business unit given a P&L. How do you have a new disruptive startup business model doing the a platform for industrial internet of things and you give it a P&L? Here's the answer. You don't. If you want to start a new platform business, you need to give that thing autonomy. You need to not hand tie, tie, tie the hands of the platform behind your back, behind its back and give it a P&L. Because if you do that and you have, I think they had hundreds or thousands of people in this business unit and that business unit had expectations to have quarterly performance right before it even really had a successful business model it was go make money 
So what ended up happening to GE Digital and GE Software is it became a services arm. It became a services arm where they had all these engineers, they had all these technical uh, product development resources. Internal to GE. So they started had out internally. services started arm. Started out internally. Right. And they would basically say, hey, you know, um, GE Aviation and Locomotive or whatever is now going to contract with G GE Digital um, for a billion dollars. And now GE Digital, GE Software is doing like $6 billion in revenue. Okay. That was not true. It was coming from other GE business units that were basically just using it as an outsourced dev shop right. to help them on their digital projects. They just centralized all their IT spending into one business unit and then called it a new business unit. <laughs> and, and they would do that for marketing purposes. Okay. Um, and then they, what they would do is then they would go become a dev shop for other industrial businesses. And then because now GE had built this brand around being innovative and digital is working for GE. And then they had this thing called Predix. You guys remember Predix? Um, then they would go and say, hey, uh, other industrial company, pay us a bunch of money and we're going to help you digitalize your own company just like we've done it at GE. Right. So they've spawned a consulting arm basically out of this. Exactly. Now, here's the problem. GE actually did have gobs and gobs of potential. You, it, you could make a development platform off of GE. Actually, in, oh, oh, GE also this thing called GE Healthcare. How did I forget about that? Think about all the medical devices. Think about all the data in the medical devices that are just stuck. And you have Epic and Cerner and all these EHRs that don't open up, don't open up the data. You could build a development platform. You, they had things for um, you know, oil refinery, right? You could, it's, there are so many third-party software developers that would relish at the opportunity to get access to the data coming out of GE's machines, whether healthcare, oil, oh, the smart factory, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that software could um, provide insights to the physician or the doctor or to the line manager in a factory or to the operations manager that, that's dredging and, and, and pumping up oil. That software could do predictive maintenance. That software could eventually actually control the machine itself and automate a lot of the machine's functions. There was actually so many different ways that if you break down the value prop of what third-party software companies could do to innovate if given access to the data coming off of the machine and then eventually some control mechanism of the connected machine, actually a lot of opportunity. You, you already have a lot of, it's not just third-party software creators. You have lots of companies that basically create software around their existing machines and devices. Says like hundreds of millions of dollars to billions of dollars of IT spend every year. And rather than basically having that be kind of one-off work that everyone has to do individually, if you start to be able to standardize that and put it into something like an app store, you start to get some economies of scale there yep. and actually start to build successful businesses there, around offering that software. There are entire consulting companies and their whole job is to help a industrial company <laughs> Yep. Um, put connected modems and connected technology onto their machines. Do these one-off the implementations. Off, right. And then build, you know, AI apps um, for that specific company. But this is exactly the model of a development platform. Centralize that connected technology. Subsidize the cost to install all that connected technology. Because then you're going to make it up on the back end when you can take a 30% cut off of all the money that your customers are spending on this third-party software uh, ecosystem. Right? That's the model. Um, and I was very hopeful for a long time that that was how, what GE, all these articles were saying, we've, we're spending a trillion dollars on industrial internet of things and, and how we made this business case. That was my hope. That's where they were going. But 
It was all smoke and mirrors. Right. And they, they fell into what I would call the typical big company innovation trap, which is let's go, let's go do a bunch of big one-off partnerships to make a few headlines and get this into the market. Yep. They never actually succeeded at building any kind of bottom-up demand for this. A lot of it was like paid partnerships and stuff where they do one-off with big companies. It wasn't like independent developers yes. or software developers coming in and saying, hey, this is great. Let me go build on this. So right. they ended up having you know like 15 apps and that kind of yes. stuff. That were available, not like, you know, at least hundreds you think they would, they would do be able to get. these mega partnerships with big right. companies. And of course, the big companies are going to say, sure, I'll do stuff with you, GE, you're GE. Um, but, but the real challenge or the real power is can you go to the small mom and pop tech startups who don't have a lot of money, don't have a lot of resources. And who you have leverage over to standardize terms. And who you have right. leverage over where you can say, hey, mom and pop tech startup. Um, or it could be a tech startup. I've raised five, 10, 50, $100 million dollars. Come and make an investment, build software on top of my platform. I'm going to help get you incremental revenue. But in exchange for that, I'm going to take 30%. And I guarantee all of the partnerships that GE did with all these other big software uh, partners absolutely had zero economics, at least in that structure. I don't know. Maybe it was a few points, some small ref share. But there's no way another large software company is going to give up 30 points to GE. Absolutely no way. And that's the whole model of a platform is when you build bottom up, as you're saying, Nick, right. if you can build the supply with small fragmented supply and then you get to the big boys, but you already have some slightly duplicative or competitive or substitute products to what the big boys have. Now you have the leverage to command the 30 percent from the SAPs or whoever these integration right. so this, partners this are. This is if you look at enterprise software. So there's yes, this has happened with Apple and Google and, and smartphones. But enterprise software, Salesforce did this. With their basically Salesforce app ecosystem, uh, they started out basically. Mark Benioff was saying, "We're going to go after these small developers, these people that aren't well supported today, and we're going to give them all the tools they need to go." And then you've basically seen people build billion-dollar businesses that all started out building Salesforce apps, uh, things that have gone public or had big acquisitions uh, bought by other companies like Oracle. Uh, so things like Eloqua uh, started out as a Salesforce app. I think things like HubSpot and a bunch of the other. Uh, email automation and sort of CRM data type tools. There's tons of these things out there. Uh, Salesforce has a thriving development ecosystem. It's actually a big part of uh, what's been their kind of successful growth story other than them making lots of acquisitions yep. over the last three plus years and going forward. Um, and they did that by building that, you know, initially bottom up, focusing on small developers, harnessing that fragmentation, not by just going out and making like three big partnerships and saying, oh, look at our development platform. Oh, this is interesting. So the guy who was running GE software was a guy named Bill Rue. Bill Rue left GE at the in December. Um, he's, I guess, running uh, chief executive officer of digital at Australian construction behemoth Lendlease. Okay. Well, there's a reason Bill Rue is no longer at GE because Bill Rue was selling smoke and mirrors. Look at this article. Uh, GE sees digital revenue more than doubling to $15 billion by 2020. Um, June 23rd, 2016, GE Chief Digital Officer Bill Roos sees the company's digital business, including software and its open source Predix operating system. And they nail these buzzwords. Generating about $7 billion in revenue this year and $15 billion by 2020, up from an earlier estimate of about $10 billion. Okay. So knowing that all of this was straight up lies, okay, I mean... I guarantee if I well, audited the books, no, 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 these are lies. If I audited the seven billion in revenue, how much of that is coming from GE business units? Right, a lot of it. At least half, for sure. They weren't doing. They didn't have a 
three and a half billion dollar consulting business in June of 2016, like with outside third party clients. And and I this none of this was disclosed properly. So let's 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 bring this full circle here. Okay, let's go back to GE is the new target of Madoff whistleblower. There are some big skeletons in this closet. If I look at the GE digital GE software story, and that's the only thing I'm familiar with, like this insurance thing, I'm not familiar with it. Really don't have much context at all. All I have to judge on is my experience with this GE digital GE software debacle. And it really is a shame. It honestly does it an injustice to all traditional enterprises that are trying to innovate. It just gives them all a bad name because then they... The, the Wall Street investors, you know, it's just so hard for them to trust. If this was GE telling me this stuff and literally it blows up and it's actually nothing. And the company's balance sheet is in dire straits and I need to sell off all these businesses, GE Healthcare included. Um, my God, like what uh, what can I actually rely on? And so I don't know, you know, I don't know the merits of this, but just and I'm not and this is no knock on the leadership of. Um, Larry Culp, the, the, the new CEO, I, I, I think he's probably a great guy and a very trustworthy guy. I am just scared about what skeletons this guy inherited because I know this was shady stuff going on in, in, in these, it's not even that old. It was just a couple of years ago. He left, he le- literally left less than 12 months ago. So it was disingenuous. I haven't looked if there's been any shareholder lawsuits, but if there was a shareholder lawsuit on this, I think that would win. I think that would win. Uh, that one got that one got a little aggressive. I didn't think, you know, I'm a fan of the innovation. I didn't want to rail on them that hard, but that got, you know, we're just being honest. We're just being honest. I know what I want to talk about, Salesforce. So why is Salesforce going to beat earnings on Thursday? Salesforce has about $10 billion in revenue top line. Salesforce does about a billion dollars in revenue from the app marketplace, just like we've been talking about with GE. It's a development platform, slightly different structure of development platform, but development platform nonetheless. Um, what does Salesforce take as a take rate on the apps? Uh, I think it's between 15 to 20, 25-ish percent, depending on the type of license and uh, do you use some of their payment infrastructure or not. So there's, there's a range, but it's uh, roughly 15 to 25%. Mm-hmm. So Salesforce. Um, over a third of Salesforce's net income is attributed to that billion dollars in revenue from the app marketplace. And there are entire public companies that started out purely as an app on Salesforce. This is exactly what we're talking about with GE. These small tech startups that literally started their business on Salesforce and then went public uh, five or seven years later. Yep. Um, so there's actually many stories or Oracle buys them for like $800 million. That was Eloqua, I believe. Eloqua, exactly. So there's actually a lot of these stories. Um, and uh, so Salesforce has identified the app marketplace as their biggest growth opportunity. I mean, they have a number of growth opportunities, obviously, but they identified, I think their last quarterly earnings, they identified the app marketplace as the biggest growth opportunity. And it's so high margin, right? Basically all that are a large majority a large chunk of that revenue just drops straight to their bottom line. Yep. Um, and uh, you know, it makes them a very, not only does it make their position for their SaaS product, which is CRM software and a number of other things now, um, very defensible, 
but it it gives them a way to monetize um, additional transactions, right? Additional software that you're using as a business, but it also improves the experience of the end customer because now I can get apps that improve the data that I have in Salesforce. I can get apps that give me additional functionality and automation and insights and intelligence into the data and how I'm using Salesforce and, and how I can put data into Salesforce because I'm integrating it into my other workflows. Um, it just makes the product so much more uh, applicable and provides so much more utility if you have the app marketplace. So I actually don't even think, I mean, Salesforce is still a very premium product to buy from a SaaS standpoint. I mean, yeah. it's not cheap to get a Salesforce license. So I don't think they've even discounted the licenses, which theoretically, you know, you could argue you might be able to if you make it up on the on the transaction revenue from the, the app marketplace. But I think they've got a very strong business. And I don't think there's any other SaaS player that has anywhere near as dominant of an app marketplace that Salesforce does. I think uh, certainly in the CRM space, that's true. I think the challenge you see for Salesforce is a lot of their growth. Top line growth has come through acquisitions Moving into areas that, you know, like Heroku, where they made a big acquisition, they're a little more kind of commodity infrastructure type businesses than uh, their CRM business. And basically by pursuing growth, uh, moving into areas that are a little less core and don't necessarily uh, make for good margins going forward. Mm -hmm. So I think if they're going to have challenges, it's how do you continue to grow uh, either without making acquisitions, some of which have been hits, some of which have been misses, uh, or how do you continue to kind of double down and focus on that core platform strength that they have? Uh, and grow focusing on that, which is where you're getting a lot of that margin out of versus going into more kind of commodity infrastructure business chasing top line growth. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously challenges there, but um, I mean, the, the Oracle has just continued to chug along despite all of this and Oracle's failure to actually um, launch or, or really build a competitive app marketplace. I think you've seen that yeah, we've gone through this switching from Oracle to Salesforce internally, full disclosure. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the switching cost for these kinds of things is so entrenched, and that's it on the scale of our organization. Imagine doing it for a multi-billion dollar company uh, that once you have these kind of systems embedded, it's just so hard to get off of them that there's a, certainly a, a strong lock-in effect for some of these uh, companies like Oracle uh, that are helping them kind of chug along. Yep, exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. I had to go straight to the source. My other apps failed me. So let's look at the Baidu results. So you can see here the, the RMB. And then um, all the way on the right here, you'll have that in, in USD. So um, they had $3.835 billion in revenue. So that's actually a big beat. Um, I think they were predicting in the 3.7s um, of revenue. So they had a, a nice beat and actually revenue growth um on uh, on the revenue basis and then the operating income let's see what is the earning per share on this is 96 cents they beat there as well that's why that's why baidu is up we've really seen these chinese platform companies they have such huge growth in front of them i think investors are handicapping them for the Chinese government and, and the stricter stuff right. there's there. There's a lot of uncertainty and risk there. The but trade there's, uncertainty. There's a lot of growth happening. Right. But they're, but relatively, they still do have so much growth and runway in front of them that you can see these guys beat. I mean, 89 cents expected earnings per share, 3.76 billion. Um, 
So their revenue still went down. They had $3.93 billion the year prior. So it still went down, but it went down less. And their earnings beat. So that's why right now Baidu is up. Wow. Um, almost 9%. So good job. Good job, Baidu. And that's a wrap for us today on Winner Take All. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.